You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's guest, who spent over 27 years in the United States Air Force and retired at the rank of Brigadier General, now runs one of the biggest VSOs in all of America. Get to that in just a moment. Just some of our normal announcements that we remind you of. And, you know, we'll stop reminding you of these when you guys start doing your part. I kid. But in all seriousness, please follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. Please continue to leave us Apple reviews. Give us five stars. Doesn't have to be a long, lengthy review. Just tell us why you like the show. Five-star rating. And eventually, we're going to crack that top 100 Apple podcast. Guys, I mean, the numbers are all there. You guys have helped grow this Hazard Ground community so great. For whatever reason, the algorithm with Apple, they want more uh, five-star ratings and things of that nature. So please give us some support there as well. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You can go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. And it'll redirect you right to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. Buy anything you like. We'll get a percentage of what you spend. And then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground Podcast, like the one you'll hear about coming up here shortly. Also works from your smartphone. If you go to hazardground.com or your smartphone in the web browser, it'll redirect you right to the Amazon app, so it's really easy and convenient. All your credit card information is saved. No headaches whatsoever, an easy way to support veterans all across America just from using your smartphone. And of course, I want to remind you guys, go to killcliff.com to check out all of Killcliff's great products, their clean energy drinks. In fact, I'm drinking one right now. Uh, this is their Recover, their post-workout drink after my workout this morning. Killcliff.com, clean energy drinks. They also have CBD in plenty of flavors and varieties, so check it out if you're a big fan, a big user of CBD. And download the Killcliff TV app because you can get all the video versions of our podcast right there on the Killcliff TV app and subscribe to our YouTube channel where we have all of our Hazard Ground episodes as well at Hazard Ground on YouTube. Now let's get on to this week's guest. As I said, 27 years in the United States Air Force, which began at the Air Force Academy, retired at the rank of Brigadier General, has multiple deployments overseas to Iraq and Afghanistan in combat uh, sorties and flight and everything else. We'll get to all that in a moment. But currently, right now, is the president and CEO of Operation Homefront, one of the largest VSOs out there, their mission to bring strong, stable, and secure military families through relief, resiliency, and recurring family support. He is Brigadier General Retired, John Bray, joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. General, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate your time. Hey, thanks, Mark. I really appreciate you having me on the show. And let me get up before I even start, I got to put a couple of congratulations out to you. First of all, congratulations on getting promoted to 06. That, Thank you. Army, that is amazing. <laughs> and you now have a command opportunity coming up, which is even more impressive. I just think those are the best uh, parts of the military. Yeah, yes. look, uh, <laughs> sir, I, I got to tell you, I, I am living proof that if you hang around long enough and don't screw up, they'll eventually give you something. So uh, let that be a testament to, to the last 20 plus years of my career. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, yeah, I was using that same uh, philosophy, and I think so. It must work uh, for us. Right, yeah. You know, for, for the select few of us who don't aspire for greatness, if you just sort of hang around long enough, uh, they, they'll let you hang around back, and, and they'll give you some cool stuff along the way. But no, all sincerely, thank you very much. I, I appreciate it. Uh, we we kind of keep my, my personal uh, career under wraps here on the show for whatever reason, because I ask all the questions here. So don't start turning the tables on me before we even get underway. Uh, you might outrank me, but this is still my show. No, I kid. I kid. Um, but again, you know, uh, thank you very much. So your career starts at the Air Force Academy. Um, is that something you always wanted to do? Did you know you wanted to go there? Did you even know you wanted to join the Air Force? How did that start? Yeah, it was really funny when I, uh, my parents were uh, the uh, greatest generation. So my, my parents had ki- uh, kids late. Uh, my dad was uh, served in the, uh, the U.S. Army. Uh, he uh, joined in, uh, in 1940. Um, and wow. uh, when he graduated from college, my mom and dad got married in June of 1940. Uh, and then their first posting was in the Philippines. And so, uh, so they, uh, they're on their way uh, to the Philippines. They get there around September of 1940. Uh, and, um, and so then they start kind of have setting up their life. Uh, but uh, y- y- we all know that the war was going on in Europe at the time. And so America was on a war footing. We're talking about, you know, supporting uh, the, um, uh, the, the British uh, in, uh, and the various allies in Europe. Uh, war clouds are brewing on the horizon in, uh, in um, the Pacific. So my dad is in the Philippines, kind of in the middle of all that. And my mom's in the middle of all that. And so as things started getting heated up, uh, where Japan is now starting to kind of invade some of their neighbors uh, in Korea and China, and it's looking like, hey, things are going to get really serious uh, in, um, in early 1941, they sent my mom back to the United States. They sent all the uh, dependents back. And so my dad's there. And I have all of his uh, correspondence back to his mom and, of course, my mom uh, as they started leading up to uh, December of 1941 when the Japanese uh, attacked Pearl Harbor. So I have all of that, uh, their history. And it's just an amazing kind of history and kind of talking about, you know, how MacArthur's getting everything set up in, in, uh, in the Pacific, et cetera. And kind of from a, a lieutenant's perspective, my dad was a company commander uh, in, uh, in um, uh, one of the regiments there in the Philippines. And so that's all leading up to the war. And then uh, the uh, December 7th comes along and um, uh, the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. We're now in the war in, in full uh, against the Japanese in the Pacific. Uh, later that month, uh, the Japanese invade the Philippines. Uh, then the struggle occur, you know, um, occurs over the next uh, three to four months as the Americans try to defend the Philippines. Very understrength. There's a lot of uh, interesting um, uh, accounts of that uh, that conflict. There is uh, a great book that that uh, is out. It's called Bataan, the Last Ditch. Uh, I recently uh, purchased that and um, uh, and read it. I, my dad is in the book. Interestingly enough, it talks about him being a company commander and how he. They, his on um, one particular battle, they his his uh, company reported him killed three times over the course of that battle. He would crawl around checking on his troops in the various foxholes. Big explosion, artillery battle going on, and and uh, and he would crawl out of the dust. You know, and they said so he thought he was killed once, thought he was killed twice, thought he was killed third time. He ends up surviving. Um, and uh, at least that particular battle. Uh, and then when the, uh, the Americans uh, surrendered uh, there uh, in uh, uh, early uh, April, my dad was part of that group. Uh, and, uh, and he then survived the Bataan Death March. Uh, 
uh, was transported back to the Japanese mainland uh, and then served three and a half years of captivity uh, as a POW. Uh, he was one of the camps. I, I don't know if you remember um, Louis uh, Zamparelli's uh, book, yep. uh, Unbroken. Yep. Uh, he talks about his pilot and then they had started the Japanese and started moving some of the um, um, the the, uh, the prisoners uh, into camps up in the mountains. Uh, my dad was in one of those two camps uh, up there. Uh, he was not um, found until two weeks after the war ended, uh, and um, uh, they were able to kind of locate uh, him and uh, his compatriots in one of the camps. Uh, he then uh, came back uh, to the United States. My dad was a pretty big guy. He's about 6'3", uh, and um, yeah, he was about 130 pounds when he came out of prison camp. Uh, they didn't want my mom to see him right away, so they sent him back on a boat. Uh, it took 30 days to get back from uh, the Philippines. And uh, one of the really kind of funny stories that my mom shares was my, my dad is really physically fit. Um, and so uh, when he came back, he then put on about a pound a day. <laughs> he weighed about 160 when he came back. Uh, but my mom, when she met him at the dock in San Francisco, put her arms around him and goes, wow, I don't remember him being this pudgy. <laughs> so, so it was not pure muscle that he put back on. Right. But uh, he, um, he came back. And uh, so it's interesting when you think about um, the, the, the challenges that greatest generation faced. Um, the first anniversary my parents shared together was their sixth. Wow. So uh, it's pretty interesting when you think about that. So all of that kind of conspired to kind of get me interested in the military. And one of the crazy things was, is I was considering going to the Air Force Academy or, or getting into the military. I was talking to my dad and my dad really didn't talk about his experiences in World War II too much. And my dad went on to serve a a fantastic career in the United States Army. He was a brigade commander and uh, and then ended up retiring uh, in Florida. That's where I grew up. But um, it's one of those things when I asked my dad, I said, hey, you know, help me understand, you know, your experiences, um, particularly as it relates to your time as a POW. And I said, this had, that had to be very difficult for you. And he said, absolutely was. But he said it was harder on your mother than it was on me. And I said, Dad, I'm having a hard time understanding that. That was a pretty brutal experience. He goes, well, just think about it. He says, for three and a half years, I knew your mother was okay. But for three and a half years, your mother never knew if I was okay. So he got captured in early April of 1942. My mom didn't even know that he was alive until December of 1942. And so, you know, you think about the impact and that has kind of guided my life um, um, and my understanding of how the military family contributes uh, to our national security and to their loved one's service. Um, it's, it's what sustained my father during his three and a half years. But that sustainment, knowing my mom was there, sustained his, his, um, uh, his ability to survive uh, such a, a very difficult experience. But he fully understood has that power of that sustainment of his life and his ability to get through that experience was so much more difficult on my mom. And so I've kind of carried with that, that with me through my life. And so that guided my whole thought process on um, getting in the military. So I said, hey, I, I thought my dad was just a remarkable um, uh, individual. I think my parents really guided me and kind of gave me that moral compass that said, hey, you know, you need to be able to serve others. We have a great nation. It's worth defending. And, um, and you know, it's, if you choose to, to do something uh, in the, the defense of this country, you know, more power to you. He didn't force me to go. Okay. Um, 
And he didn't, you know, kind of, he just let me make that own decision. So when we were traveling as young, younger, um, we went out to the Air Force Academy and uh, watched, I said, oh my God, that's what I want to do. I want to fly airplanes. That's it. Okay. I want to fly airplanes. So here I am as a uh, college, I mean, a uh, high school junior. And I'm saying, yeah, I want to go to the Air Force Academy. That's what I want to do. So back then, <laughs> they used to have a thing called a typewriter. I don't know if you ever heard of one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the, the, the application form was typewritten. And so I, I get this, um, uh, this application, and there's a whole block. It's about that big on the form that says, why do you want to come to the Air Force Academy? So uh, my dad gives this to me. I fill out all the requisite stuff at the top, name, you know, and all that other stuff. And so it gets to that block where it says, why do you want to go to the Air Force Academy? And so I fill out, I type that away, and uh, it, it, I pull that thing out and show it to my dad. <laughs> my dad reads it. He goes, I want to fly airplanes, period. <laughs> and my dad goes, well, um, that's a good start. Yeah. Um, there's a whole lot of space on this, <laughs> this form that you may want to fill up. And I said, hey, good point, Dad. I'm with you. And so I put that back in there. I changed the period to a comma. And I said, and get a good education, period. Oh. At least I got it down to the second line yeah. uh, of this big block. And despite my concise um, reason, they did select me to go to the Air Force Academy. And I did get the chance to realize my dream to, uh, to fly airplanes. That's uh, that's pretty funny. Um, you know, typewriter, <laughs> typewriters, and fax machines—things uh, that that uh, are now used in two sentences. Uh, one, things we don't use anymore, and two, things that are still used at the VA. So there is that. Um, <laughs> probably why things are the way they are, but uh, different discussion. So, but I mean, your parents are very encouraging of it. There, there was nothing about your dad that that ever said, "I don't ever want my son to have to deal with what I went through," and and let's not even take this risk. No, he did not. Uh, my my younger brother uh, serves uh, served in the army, um, and um, uh, he rose to the rank of lieutenant colonel. Retired just a few years ago. Uh, my middle brother um, he uh, ended up uh, becoming a very successful businessman, uh, and so he encouraged all of us to pursue our individual dreams, whatever that sure. may be. And um, and for me, it was. Um, flying airplanes. I can't say it when I was a 17 year old, I was looking at that going, man, I really want to serve this country and, you know, do my part. Um, it was pretty much all about, Hey, I want to fly airplanes. I think that's pretty damn exciting. And uh, where else would you go than uh, the air force Academy when you had a you know better chance of, uh, of doing that? Um, so uh, with, with the broad, I want to fly airplanes, did you have any idea of which airplane that you were going to get into or you didn't care? No, at the point at the time, no, I had no real, uh, real preference on any of that. And so, uh, but I did, when I went to the Academy, I get a chance to my first opportunity was to get into the glider program. Mm -hmm. And I love that. I thought, oh my gosh, this is great. This is exactly what I was hoping for. Uh, And so that just encouraged me when I uh, had propeller training there at the Academy. Um, We got into the propeller airplanes as well. And I said, oh, I can't wait to go to pilot training uh, where we get the jet training. Uh, I went to Williams Air Force Base near Phoenix. Uh, and um, uh, fortunately, I graduated high enough in my class where I got a chance to pick the airplane I wanted. And um, one of the things I thought about very hard was my personality type. Um, I, uh, I enjoy being part of a team. And um, that's kind of why I picked uh, the airplane I did, which was a 141, which was a cargo airplane. Uh, and that kind of, you could have set me off. There were two different tracks. You can get in the fighter track. Uh, you can get in the transport or mobility track. And I said, you know, I really think I prefer to mo- the, the mobility track. I enjoy flying uh, as part of a, 
a group and a team, and uh, which you don't have that opportunity to do so in the fighter business as much. Now you fly in formations, of course, but you don't fly uh, fly to uh, in the same airplane very often. So anyway, that kind of set me off on a track, and um, uh, I went to Norton Air Force Base. It was my first assignment after pilot training, and and what was really great about that particular assignment is it got me into the tactical business. I really enjoyed uh, the whole idea of being an airdrop. Uh, in the air refueling. Uh, I got into the special ops business there. Uh, and it was just incredibly exciting to be able to fly a big airplane, low level, uh, to be able to uh, to navigate, uh, to kind of penetrate defenses and, you know, be able to drop um, uh, troops, uh, you know, or, you know, kind of various places. I've had the opportunity to work with a variety of different um, special ops units, which uh, has been just very remarkable. I cannot say enough good things about uh, all the different special ops units uh, in this uh, country, whether it's Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines, whoever, uh, a very, very uh, special, unique group of people that um, uh, do some amazing things uh, are, you know, literally around the globe. And so I've had a chance to work with some really great folks um, in my career. Uh, so anyway, starting out in the special ops business, uh, continue to do that throughout my career. Uh, and uh, and um, I just think that's just been uh, remarkable. So when was this that you graduate from the Air Force Academy and then through flight school and everything else, just trying to gain, gain a time frame of where we are? So, yeah, so I went to the, um, I, I went to the Academy um, in um, uh, 1976, but oh, that's okay. really old, um, and graduated in 1980. Um, my class was the first class with women, um, and that was, I think, a big change for uh, the military, and I set us uh, onto a, a really great course of being able to you know, integrate um, you know, women in the uh, different military services. It already had started a bit, but I think this was kind of a catalyst, uh, kind of uh, jump-started uh, that whole process. And, and I think we're a much richer um, nation and a much richer military for that. Um, and so I've kind of seen that, saw that whole um, experience uh, transpire over during my time, my 27 years in the military. Um, so I graduated in 1980. I got out of pilot training in 81. Uh, first assignment there um, uh, at Norton Air Force Base, where I had the opportunity to learn my craft uh, as an aviator uh, was from 81 to 86. Uh, and so um, it, it just kind of set the tone of, um, uh, of working with some really special people in a, in, in a very special way. And uh, I just uh, I felt that was a great start. But one of the things I found out early on is that um, uh, as, as fun and exciting as the special ops business was, there was something more to the military than simply just flying airplanes or doing the job, which was exciting and very interesting. But there was a much more important part for me personally, and that was the leadership side of it. Uh, I enjoyed the opportunity, the privilege of uh, leading others um, and to to do a variety of different important tasks, whatever that is that the, the country was asking of me to do. Um, I just felt that that leadership component was so powerful, which is why I applaud your uh, uh, your selection, uh, not only for uh, 06, but for command. I just think that is a real reflection on the, the military's, the Army's confidence in you as an individual. And I just really applaud you for doing all that. But I did find that particularly powerful and particularly motivating. And, and that's kind of what guided the rest of my life as I've made other decisions, whether to get out of the military uh, when I was at the White House. And we'll talk about that, I guess, in a little mm-hmm. bit. But yeah. that's, uh, that's kind of guided things and why I'm now serving, continue to serve uh, our military and our military families in my current role as the CEO of Operation Home Front. 
Yeah, tangentially on leadership, you know, it's it's interesting after doing this for so many years. Um, I always f- personally felt that the best part of me and the best part of me as, a, as an officer and a leader has always been in command, right? Like that's mm-hmm. where I am most comfortable. It's the arena in which I excel the best. Uh, I'm not a very good staff officer because those <laughs> folks irritate me. Um, so, but there, I mean, look, and I, I say this with, with a genuine, you know, regard for everybody's different skill sets. There are some people who are great in command. There are some people who aren't. There are some people who are fantastic staff officers, and there are some people who aren't. That doesn't mean that they're bad officers or they're good officers. It just means that everybody's role and everybody excels at different things, and that's what makes our organization as the military so unique that, um, you know, we, we find the right pieces and put them in the right place uh, to make things successful. Um, now, again, everybody's going to get a chance to command. Everybody's going to get a chance if you're on the officer's side. Everyone's going to get a chance to be a, a commander. Everyone's going to get a chance to be a, st- a staff officer. And on the NCO side, same thing. There are positions in staff and positions in leadership where you're in control of troops. And um, everybody needs those experiences. But clearly, you know, I, I think there are certain people you can recognize throughout the course of your career who are better leaders in command positions than there are better staff officers. And, and uh, uh, I just, you know, it's worth noting that not every puzzle piece fits in the, in the right spot, you know, and that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, there, but it takes the whole team to make the, the yes, machine. Yes, 100%. Work. And, uh, and I do think um, one of the points you make and you touched on briefly was this whole idea about our NCOs. I think that's what really separates our military from many other militaries and why our military is so good is because of our NCOs, um, their ability to uh, think independently and, um, and be just accomplished leaders on their own. They're not just robots that are just executing orders from above. They're able to um, really think through things in a very thoughtful and, uh, and proactive manner, be able to take the initiative. Uh, and I think it's our NCOs that really makes our military uh, what it is today. Um, now, granted, it's wonderful leadership uh, at all ranks, but I do think our NCOs uh, really are the kind of the secret sauce to our uh, our success as, uh, as a military. All right. So back to uh, you, because, again, you finish in 1980 and you go through pilot training in 81. Uh, we have 10 years now of relative peace uh, in front of us. So... Um, when you signed up, was this one of those things where you felt like you had to be in combat to fulfill your role or were you just content being in the pilot seat and doing what pilots do? And that was enough for you at the, at the early part of the, my, uh, my career was just, Hey, it was just enough to be that. I mean, right. I just enjoyed all the different components about flying and, you know, in, in the, with the 141, you know, it, it was one of those things that could do low level missions. It can do air refueling missions and we could fly around the world strategically. It could fly tactically at, um, uh, I got in the, uh, the special ops low level, um, program, soul one, uh, then soul two, when you wear night vision goggles, uh, to, to, um, uh, to, to land at uh, different locations. And, uh, and so that whole crowd that I ended up kind of hanging around with, whether they were in the army, the air force or the Navy Marine Corps, to some lesser extent, it, it was just a remarkable group of people. They were just so intelligent, so um, motivated and so capable. I just really fed off of, you know, all that positive energy. And um, it was very fulfilling, uh, particularly those early parts uh, of my career. But as I said, you know, as I got kind of very proficient in what I was doing, I was kind of become a better aviator. I did find out that there was, it's not just kind of doing that. I enjoyed the ability now to lead formations. I enjoyed the ability to lead larger groups. And, uh, and then I kind of changed my aspirations, not just to be a good pilot, 
But at that point, I said, hey, I would love to be able to be a squadron commander someday, mm-hmm. you know, and lead big formations of, uh, of uh, planes to, to do something important. Uh, then I became, wow, I'd love to be a group commander. I'd love to be a wing commander. That was my ultimate goal was to, to be a wing commander. Um, and uh, fortunately, I had the opportunity to, to be a wing commander twice, which uh, I feel very blessed. So uh, as the Gulf War approaches, is this part of your next big step in your career or does it miss does it pass you by uh, no it doesn't uh, yeah, because I, I didn't I was fortunate enough to say that I flew most of my career my one staff assignment again I don't know if I'm a very good staff officer um, uh, I think I share that uh, <laughs> that uh, that deficiency with you yeah um, but I was uh, I was my staff opportunity was at uh, the special ops command uh, and uh, I had the opportunity to be the executive officer for um, Wayne Downing um, who is considered one of the founders, the fathers of uh, the, uh, the Army Special Ops team. So I was his uh, assistant executive I, uh, officer. I traveled uh, with him. Uh, there was uh, the, uh, the aide was a SEAL, Navy SEAL, um, Tim Basilvac, who we had an absolute ball. Uh, I followed uh, my best friend in that position. Uh, that's a gentleman named Jeff Brake. Uh, and um, Bob Harward was the SEAL at the time, uh, was the aide. So Tim Basilvac and I uh, traveled with uh, General Downing uh, until he retired uh, there in uh, in '96. And uh, and so um, I, I really had the opportunity to see the inside staff workings of the um, uh, the special ops community. And one of the really crazy things was when I started every time I prepared papers for the for General Downing in the morning, I would put these, we all had different color pens. So we knew who was writing notes to each other. And so um, I, uh, I'd write mine. I was blue. I think so his was red. So anyway, I would check all these things off on this, um, all the different notes um, on this report every morning to the, to uh, General Downing. And, uh, and I thought I was looking at all the right things, um, you know, like all the operational stuff that I thought he would be really excited about. It was really exciting to me. And so uh, I check him off, but I would find that all his check marks were on other things, you know, like he, he checked those off every so often, but it would be more on acquisition. It would be more on um, some funding. It would be more on policy. It would be on some really big thinking things. And it really wasn't quite the education on how does a four star think? And, you know, what does that look like? And so I learned an incredible amount from him. He was a terrific leader. Um, and um, and I just really enjoyed that particular experience. And, you know, that kind of set me up for, for success. I did go to the Army school, uh, the Intermediate Service School. Uh, and um, uh, because as I was growing up in the special ops community, I ended up finding myself working with more Army folks than Air Force folks. And yeah. so I had built some wonderful friendships with a variety of uh, amazing army officers uh, and NCOs. And uh, uh, and that kind of guided me. I said, hey, I really like to go to uh, the same place my dad went because my dad went to uh, Fort Leavenworth uh, as well. So I did uh, my one year command and general staff college there. And what I really found out was, is that, you know, that the army system is how the the military, all the different military services do their planning, Uh, you know, commander's estimate, you know, preparation of battlefield, all that other, those things that go into those concepts. 
you know, and when I got back with my Air Force buddies, a lot of them go, man, how do you know all this stuff? You know, and I'm going, well, I spent one year with the Army in yeah. their, uh, their, uh, at the Command and General Staff College. You see, you, you, were, you were fortunate not to have that start with you at ROTC uh, no. with the MDMP <laughs> and then just regurgitate it, spit it out, reorganize it, call it something different, do it 17 times over before you finish ILE. So, you know, uh, you, you took the shortcut, which was smart on your end. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole reason that Air Force guys do what they do. It's kind of <laughs> short, but, um, and then make that all work. Yeah, no, I didn't have to, you know, live it like for 20 years yeah. before doing it. Yeah. Uh, I just got the short course. Um, and uh, and then I got a chance to go to, I uh, was selected for another school right after that. Um, it's called the School of Advanced Air Power Studies, and that was down in Maxwell. So it, the Army has a similar course called the, uh, the School of Advanced Military Studies, SAMS. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they do right after the command of general staff. So I did that, and then I went to um, work for General Downing at uh, in Tampa. Um, so uh, anyway, so but wonderful. Did you get, did you get downrange for Desert Storm or no? Uh, we, you know, when we when you talk about going where to go. So what happened then? You kind of move forward a little, kind of fast forward a little bit. I'm now I went to, um, I, I went to, to my squadron command uh, in. Uh, uh, in Washington, uh, Seattle, Washington, there at uh, McCord Air Force Base, mm-hmm. uh, and then I had the opportunity to um, uh, to go to school, Air War College, and then I went to my com- uh, group command. But then I'll kind of fast forward a little bit. I'm now kind of in. Uh, I'm at McGuire Air Force Base, uh, and we're now flying KC-10s, and we're opening up a variety of different uh, locations uh, in uh, in Iraq. Uh, we, you know, we've went out in Iraq. We were actually opening those up in uh, IUD uh, in a variety of places yep. in theater there. So, yeah, that whole thing went. And then uh, one of the first, uh, when I became a wing commander uh, at uh, Dover Air Force Base, uh, we flew C-5s there. And I was um, on the first C-5 that we flew into Bagram uh, there um, when we were kind of setting up that base um, uh, as we were kind of working on that. So we flew a, one of my special ops crews um, did that. And I was able to join them on that particular mission going into, um, uh, into, uh, into country. So um, anyway, the, it's those kind of things that kind of, um, uh, you know, as a leader, you want to be there with, with your team, you know, now you want to have confidence in your team that, you know, they're able to do everything um uh, that uh, they've been trained to do, but you also want to make sure that, you know, you should kind of show them the physical courage that you can be there for them. It's not just you're sending them in the harm's way, but you're willing to go there too. And I think that's one of the key uh, aspects of leadership uh, that uh, I learned early on from my father uh, and the various kind of stories that he uh, at least relayed about his experiences in the military, particularly in, in, uh, in the Philippines when they were in there. My father also fought in Korea as well, which is a whole other set of stories. But um, uh, the point is it's, uh, it's about uh, not only just um, being willing to send others into harm's way, but being willing to go yourself. So where are you on 9-11? On uh, 9-11, I was at um, McGuire Air Force Base, okay. and uh, I was a group commander, um, and uh, that was a pretty uh, interesting experience. Um, uh, at McGuire Air Force Base, uh, my particular group had 141s and KC-10s in the group, and so uh, I remember watching that morning when uh, my executive officer comes in and says, hey, we uh, there's just been an airplane hit um, the, the tower. I said, oh, my gosh. So, you know, we turned the TV on, we're watching that whole thing. And um, we said, how could that happen? It's a clear day. Everything else, we're kind of going through that whole process. And uh, and thinking through that, going, how could that, the guy must have, you know, had a heart attack or something like that. And, you know, we're kind of hearing it was a big airplane. How did that happen? Um, and so we're kind of getting, you know, pieces of information. And all of a sudden, the second one hits. It's like, oh, my God, now we're under attack. 
my um, my wing commander. So uh, in the um, in the Air Force, uh, when you're a wing command, there's a wing commander, a vice wing commander, and then there's the ops group commander, kind of the chain of command on the base. And so I was like the number three guy on the base. And my uh, my wing commander was on an airplane getting ready to go uh, somewhere. And I brought I, I canceled his flight. I said you need to get in here because um, there's something really kind of crazy going on. So we brought him back in and he started to set up what's called our crisis action team uh, in the, uh, on the installation. Um, we did not know what was going on at the time. And um, uh, in my wing commander, General Mentemeyer, uh, was um, uh, assigned to the uh, CENTAF uh, and the Central Command and um, area of responsibility. He was the, the person that was going to go help uh, plan mobility things. So they immediately sent him down to Shaw Air Force Base uh, to kind of start linking into uh, CENTCOM and all the different things that were going to happen there. My vice wing commander was actually on a safety investigation in North Carolina, and they didn't let him come back. They said, well, you need to complete that. So I then ended up getting running the base for the next six weeks. And we were the base where all of the um, uh, FEMA teams came through. Uh, to go up yeah. to uh, work on the pile uh, there in New York City. And so I have uh, established uh, a fantastic relationship with the FEMA teams. I cannot say enough good things about the 26 national FEMA teams um, and what they do for, um, in, in with regards to the disaster response uh, for literally all of us. Uh, many of the, um, the uh, entities go, are able to be deployed overseas. And so we help not only just, uh, you know, to respond to uh, crises around the U.S., but around the globe. But anyway, so we had 20 of the 26 FEMA teams uh, at the time come through um, and work on the pile. Uh, and um, it was just very rewarding to be able to kind of support that kind of activity. We were even setting up uh, military hospitals uh, at McGuire Air Force Base in the, in the event that something else was going to happen bigger. So um, uh, we were somewhat of a central point uh, in the Air Mobility Command for responding to uh, the 9-11 attacks. But uh, that was a very, uh, very intense period. Sure. Um, so with combat kicking off shortly thereafter, kind of what's next for you? I mean, does your position as a group commander even allow you to get involved in any of this or how does this start to unfold? Well, that's kind of when we started then opening up uh, various different locations because we're now moving all those assets in theater. And right. and one of the big things I think that's really key is in, in you know, any conflict we uh, as a nation we uh, work very hard on making sure we're, we're providing all the assets we can to keep our military members as safe as possible. Now, granted, they're in harm's way, and that's what they're doing. And, you know, Army, Navy, Marine units, all in, in harm's way. But what we try to do is make sure that they, we have, you know, ways that we can support them. And one of the ways we support them in combat is through air power, through that combat um, uh, platforms, uh, you know, fighters and bombers, et cetera. And so one of the things that you need to do is make sure that they're available, you know, 24 seven, you know, and you call and we're dropping bombs on somebody. Uh, it's that kind of pinpoint kind of uh, uh, support that is critical to, you know, um, our combat capabilities. And so then all of a sudden you need what to do that. You need every fueling platforms to be able to keep those airplanes up 24 seven. So that's a whole movement of um, combat assets. We call them, you know, tankers in this case. And so I was able to go and, um, and fly with a number of my crews with those combat sorties, you know, so now you're flying in the Gulf, you know, uh, and, you know, making sure that, uh, uh, you know, you have those, um, uh, those air, uh, refueling platforms up uh, and available for uh, the Air Force assets uh, so that they can support the Army and Navy uh, Marine units on ground. Um, 
not to dive too personal, but is, is your father alive at this point in time? He's not. He, okay. he passed away in 95. Uh, right. He was 78 at the time. Um, he had a acute um, with uh, leukemia. And so he passed oh, away. Sure. Very rapidly. Yeah, my, mom asked, into, my mom lived until uh, she was 20 years later. So oh, wow. she passed away in 2015 well, at 96. So, I'm curious uh, then, did, did I was going to ask if your father had a conversation with you about combat before going to it. Did your mother? You know, interestingly enough, you know, um, you know, my mom was always very quiet about that. Um, I think that probably dredge up, uh, you know, dredged up a couple yeah. of, let's say some bad memories there. To say the um, least. You know, we were, I was very careful about telling her where I went after I went. Um, so, uh, so wouldn't, uh, to, uh, to be too concerned, but um, uh, you know, it was, it's um, uh, it's uh, an interesting uh, dynamic that you know many families, you know they acknowledge that these are difficult times, but they don't want to talk about them too much because if you talk about it too much, then it becomes too real. And so, uh, and I think that's kind of one of the stressors on our military families, uh, no matter whether it's serving, you know, back in World War One, World War Two, Korean War, Vietnam War, whenever you know through all our, our current uh, conflicts is the fact that um, our, our military families, you know, they, they're under a lot of stress and, uh, and they do, and they bear that stress gracefully. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not there. And so um, um, that's some of the things I think we all need to remember, even though we're not in necessarily a, a time of active combat uh, in many locations, you know, there are still 300,000 Americans that are deployed across this world uh, and representing us out there. And in, in most cases, they're in harm's way. And so that puts a lot of stress on the, uh, the families that are kind of waiting at home for them to come back. You know, you, you had been doing this for 20 years uh, when 9-11 happens. Um, and, and you sort of really get that experience, talk about combat sorties and things of that nature. And, you know, you're helping, uh, you know, the the tip of the spear be the very tip of the spear, right? Um, mm-hmm. Is there any sense of extra fulfillment for you at this point in time? I and mean, does any of you bother to reflect back on the kid who just wanted to fly planes and get an education and go, uh, I never thought I'd be here, or this is kind of the real stuff I've been waiting for 20 years to actually do? Like, where, where is your mindset? Do you, do you have that ability to be reflective at that point in time? Yeah, you do. You know, as you kind of reflect upon that, you know, as you kind of go through this, um, one of the things that I remember, one of my good friends, um, Bob Allardyce, led a major airdrop uh, in um, uh, in uh, Iraq. Um, in uh, it's kind of the biggest one since World War II. Did a fab- fabulous job, and I, I reflected back upon that, and I said, you know, that that's the, you know all those things that we developed, we worked on, you know, and 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 throughout all our. Uh, all our time, the capabilities that we worked on and continue to perfect and hone the skills, bring on new airplanes, the C-17, et cetera, all came to fruition in our ability to do that particular drop in the, in a combat drop uh, scenario. You know, I had one of my early on in my career, I did uh, Grenada uh, and that was oh, really? crazy, you know? So yeah. Why did we skip of- over that? Yeah, well, you know, it was one of those things early. Uh, that was uh, that was when I was a, a you know a, a co-pilot. It was in the special ops business, and um, you know we had no idea where we were going. We were getting alerted in the middle of the night. Uh, we ended up showing up uh, in uh, at Pope Air Force Base. Uh, we were four crews from uh, from Norton, and we got linked up with eight crews from Charleston. Uh, their special ops crews, uh, and we were going to kind of be the second round of um, uh, forces going into Grenada. Uh, and so the first forces had come on back. Uh, and um, 
and after their initial drops in there, which were very difficult, if you recall uh, the story there, the 130s went in there and dropped and, and uh, they had some trouble getting the, the drops off and they dropped the headquarters element first, not the, <laughs> not the first couple of shooters. And, uh, and then they had to come back around again. Uh, fortunately, the, uh, the Cubans had their weapons up on the hills and they couldn't depress them enough to shoot low level. So it was a combat job where they were, you know, jumping at it, you know, five or 600 feet. Uh, and we're, and so then we were the next set of forces to go on down there. And, and so we all launched, we loaded up with, um, 120 guys, uh, 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 paratroopers from the 82nd Airborne. Uh, we were all going to go do a big drop down there. Uh, found out that the, the, the field was relatively secure. And so we transferred in from a drop to an air land uh, uh, effort where we then started stacking up, you know, uh, and then we're all going in one at a time. Uh, we found out that there was a six inch drop, you know, on the runway uh, that we had to negotiate about halfway down. Uh, and so uh, we all kind of, everybody kind of started moving through there and getting uh, troops dropped off. Uh, so here we are on the, our way in and my best friend, uh, Jeff Brake, uh, and his crew was in the airplane in front of us. And he was still on the ground at, uh, at, at, uh, in Grenada. So he's now at the end of the runway. And what you would do is you would land one way and then you would kind of take off kind of back as, as we were coming in. So, um, uh, we'd kind of pass each other. Uh, so he then, he starts kind of rolling down the runway, but he's not rolling down fast enough. Um, he then got told to turn around and go pack, pick up some other troops that had to get out of there, uh, for whatever reason. So now we're on our way in and it's getting dark. And so we didn't want to turn our lights on because we didn't want to get shot at because he's now getting shot at on the ground. And so we're going, well, why do we want to highlight ourselves by turning our landing lights on? Right. And, uh, and so we end up having to. So he, he we're watching him go the other way down the runway, the same way we we're going to land. We're going, OK, we can't do this. So we now have to go around. Um, uh, while he's taking fire on the ground and now we're kind of making this big circle and we, we kind of find out, Hey, there's like three Navy helicopters in front of us. Cause you know, things were kind of, you know, pretty you know, uh, chaotic from a airspace perspective. So we almost run into the three helicopters that were kind of maneuvering out of our way. So then we got to kind of set up for another run at it again. And now he's getting, he's now takes off uh, and is able to kind of get out of there. And, um, and so then we're told about halfway on the way in that, hey, we're not sure we're going to let you land because we don't want any landings at night because we didn't want anybody to kind of crap out on the, on the runway uh, and, you know, you know, kind of close the field down. So we only didn't have enough gas at that point to kind of drop our guys off. So we drove, we flew around and uh, they said, go to Barbados. So we offloaded our troops at Barbados, and then we headed back to Pope. Uh, is kind of how we uh, we did all that. So we uh, uh, some some funny stories uh, along that. I probably shouldn't share those with you here. About uh, you know, uh, I, I think I can share one here that it was just funny. It was related by our loadmaster, and uh, with regards to going in and kind of setting up, kind of you know, the, kind of the intensity of what's kind of going on. So now you've got you know, 120 guys in the back of the airplane. So we're on our way down to Grenada and um, our, our loadmaster calls up and says, oh, you wouldn't believe what just happened. Um, one of the soldiers stood up and goes, Sergeant, Sergeant, who do we shoot at, Sergeant? Okay. And so the Sergeant looks around and goes, Rodriguez. So he looked Hispanic, like a Cuban. 
<laughs> he goes, Rodriguez, stand up. <laughs> and the sergeant goes, you see anybody like that? You shoot them. <laughs> so that was the, uh, the, 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 the funny story about, you know, these are young men and women who are doing some amazing things for this country. And, you know, at a very kind of life or death level. And, you know, and there's that NCO going, okay, well, let's kind of calm the team down here a little bit uh, about how this all works. Um, uh, and, um, and so the challenge, of course, uh, that <laughs> we, uh, one of the guys, because we transferred from an airdrop to an air land mission, some guys left their weapons on the airplane. So we collected all the weapons and we, when we got back to uh, Pope Air Force Base, we we're handing law rockets and personal handguns, uh, to our command post <laughs> that, uh, that uh, we got back. But um, no, that was a very interesting mission uh, there. Um, that was the same time that uh, the, um, uh, the, uh, the, um, in Beirut, uh, the Marine barracks in Beirut uh, got bombed. And so my family thought I was actually in Beirut uh, as opposed to Grenada at that particular time. Wow. Crazy. Um, <laughs> so, you get this, you know, you have this long career and you do the, the global war on terror thing. Uh, and then eventually you end up in the federal government, uh, which, you know, sounds just awful on the surface. Um, I kid, but in reality, you know, for as we talked earlier, for somebody who, who loves command and loves, you know, being in charge of troops, you're the furthest thing away from troops when it comes to hanging out at places like the National Security Council and the White House Situation Room. And so it's almost like, you know, a complete opposite of what you had done your entire career. So tell me how you end up like chronologically where you go first and how you get out of sort of regular everyday duty into that sort of role. So one of the things is, is you know, we talked about command is, is really quite a remarkable experience. And so when I had the opportunity, um, I left Air War College and then I became a group commander. And that's kind of what we did 9-11. Right. Uh, and then um, after that group command, one of the things I think is really um, kind of important the way that the military, like other businesses do, they kind of make sure that you're starting to broaden out and being able to understand multiple different aspects of, uh, of the military experience. So you need to understand a little bit about the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, to kind of be able to utilize those forces more effectively. And, and one of the things that they do is uh, give you opportunities to be have get joint experience, being able to do something outside of your own service. And so when, um, when that opportunity came to me, I had the opportunity right after my group command experience was to go to become the deputy national security council, uh, the executive secretary, uh, the deputy executive secretary of the national security council. So that was like a one quick one year assignment to understand kind of a very strategic level um, look at how military forces are employed uh, right. and all the different considerations. Now, what year is this? This would have been, um, uh, let me see, it would have been 2002 to 2003. Okay. So it was pretty much the run-up right. to our um, engagement yeah. in, in, in Iraq. Uh, and, um, and so that was quite exciting to see all the different things at a very high level on, you know, the considerations that, you know, all the different things that you have to think about you know, to get into a conflict, let alone, you know, be able to prosecute it successfully. So watched all that run up to the, 
to the decisions uh, on on getting into into the war, um, and and you know then we we uh, ended up getting into the war. So I was with the Bush administration, uh, two thousand two to two thousand three. I had the opportunity to kind of work on the national security strategy, which I thought was a, a very interesting and compelling document um, that kind of describes how you're going to do a lot of these different force employment. It kind of tells you the philosophy of the president on how they're going to be looking at the world and, you know, um, what the military role in that uh, that world is uh, and how we are able to influence that. I cannot say enough good things about uh, George Bush of uh, 43. Um, I met his father, 41, on a number of occasions, but I do think uh, 43 was quite remarkable. Um, I then got to serve him a little bit later. So what happened after my one-year time uh, as a deputy uh, executive secretary there at the National Security Council, I went to become the wing commander at Dover. Okay. And that's when we then started to kind of move more of our forces uh, in uh, into place. I talked about flying with one of my crews uh, into uh, in a combat circumstance, uh, the C-5, getting into a location to drop off uh, some uh, supplies and some of our deployed troops uh, to do that particular thing. Uh, the other thing at Dover was uh, that I take great pride in was I was the uh, wing commander from three to 2003 to 2005. And so for two years, I did this every day when I was bringing home the, the fatalities yeah. from that um, uh, that were you know starting to kind of pile up. Uh, it's where the mortuary was. I think the mortuary, our, our mortuary is a national treasure. Uh, they do a marvelous job. That's the Charles Carson Center for Mortuary Affairs. Uh, it's an amazing place, and it does uh, such a great job of uh, preparing our, our military members to be received by their loved ones. Um, wherever they may be in the United States. But um, I did that for two years um, and uh, some amazing stories. Um, um, I, I cannot tell you how emotionally powerful it is to get on a, a 141 and see um, 29 flag-draped transfer cases on that, 14 rows in the 15th with one um, and we would take those off individually. We would do a dignified transfer. We would get those remains over to the, uh, the mortuary so they can be identified uh, and then prepared for uh, ultimate delivery to their families, um, only to be um, outdone when uh, there was a, two helicopters uh, crashed uh, together uh, in, um, uh, I think it was Iraq. It could have been Afghanistan. But um, 44 members came back on a C-5. 11 rows. Four transfer cases. I just so I get chills like in a bad way. Just th- you know, oh god. It, it, it is. It is. You kind of walk up the ramp on a C five and looking at forty four transfer cases. It's like, wow, this is this is what it's all about, um, and this is the sacrifice that you know. Um, forty four families are forever changed. Um, because of their loved ones volunteering for serving this great nation. And, um, and they're the ones that have to bear a lot of the, um, the aftermath of that. Um, um, I think one of the real powerful things about this country is we do have a volunteer force and people are volunteering to do that. But I think it's, we should never lose sight of the fact that the families don't necessarily volunteer. And uh, they're going to be the ones that have to live with uh, those decisions. And, um, um, very powerful moment. Um, there were other powerful moments there. Um, um, lots of stories of loss. I remember um, um, there was a gentleman, they, they would always be escorted back 
um, by someone in uniform. So they would come right off the battlefield and come back. And I remember this one uh, sergeant was very distraught. And he turns to me and says, do you mind if I use your phone? Because what we would do is we would kind of prepare. Uh, we'd have a group that would go out and prepare the transfer cases. We'd put the flags on them so we could do that dignified transfer. Then we would go out and do that. But while that was happening, we would have um, those um, uh, escort officers come into our lounge and we would kind of make sure that they were you know, properly fed and hydrated and everything else to go back out and do that very difficult task. Well, one um, sergeant was very distraught. And he says, can I borrow your phone? I said, yeah, sure, not a problem. Um, and so I could not stood off a respectable distance just to make sure that he was okay. And he goes, hey, Pops, I couldn't save her. It was his wife in the transfer case. Oh, Jesus. And he's talking to her father. And they were both in EOD. And they were disarming um, bombs on both sides of the street. And the one that she was disarming ex- exploded. And oh my God. And so, um, and so again, you know, you could tell he was in, in very distraught. Um, and, um, you know, and then we, we did the transfer and, you know, we then got him of course on his way, you know, quickly to get back to being with loved ones. But, you know, it's that kind of level of, you know, of, <laughs> of emotion that I think is, you know, cannot be lost on, you know, it's not just numbers. It's not just, you know, transfer cases, there are faces and there are families that are involved in all of this. And so I, I take those two years as being, I, I felt very proud of being able to, um, um, to, uh, to represent the United States uh, and welcome those fallen heroes home um, for their first time. And then we moved on back to their families, of course. But I had probably have, a, I'd say, at least 30 stories similar uh, to that. Um, and um Keeps you, very, very keeps you very humble. It does. It does. It, uh, it makes you kind of say, wow, look at this. This is, there's a real, it's, you know, you see the transfer case and then you see the families about all that. And while I was there, we were allowed, we allowed the families to come visit and do those, uh, mm-hmm. see the transfers. Uh, and that's again, a very you know, difficult circumstance for many families. Sure. Um, I don't, know, I don't want to fast forward too far, but how much of an impact did that assignment have on you ending up with a place like Operation Homefront? I think it just reinforced all the things that I knew um, because, you know, I I really internalized my dad's, you know, comments about how much, how difficult it is on on my mom. I mean, that really stuck with me. It's like, wow, it's of all the things my dad went through and survived, he would still give my mom um, props for what she had to endure for that. And so as all those things kind of came bubbling back whenever I see some of these particular difficult circumstances. Um, and um, uh, I just think that's exactly, it, it kept reinforcing that over and over again. All right. Uh, I don't know how I transition out of that, but eventually you end up back in the White House situation room. Well, so my next assignment then uh, is uh, after I leave Dover, I then become the wing commander at Andrews Air Force Base. Okay. So now I'm kind of you know doing all the DV airlift, managing all the different parts of that puzzle. Yep. Uh, and you know making sure that all of our senior leaders, um, whether they're in the military or civilian leaders, uh, have the connectivity and the transportation that they needed to be able to kind of conduct the nation's business wherever they were. And so um, uh, I did that for two years, and as I was on my way to another assignment. The White House brought me back 
and said, hey, um, we'd really like to have you operationalize the situation room. Um, it, it had gone undergone a renovation. Uh, that renovation just was starting when I left previously, you know, and now uh, it was complete. And and uh, and so they said, we'd like to have you operationalize the, the situation room. I said, oh, yeah, well, if you can get me out of my other assignment, I'd be happy to do that. Of course, they said, yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll be happy to do that. And so uh, so I find myself then uh, as director of the White House Situation Room and um, uh, in being able to kind of make sure that that, um, that hub turns into what it's designed to do is provide all the senior uh, um, governmental um, decision makers, the president, vice president, uh, national security council, et cetera, all of them with the information that they need to continue to, uh, to do. Um, well, of course, uh, you hear White House Situation Room, all you think of is President Obama and at the time, Secretary yeah. of State Hillary Clinton, you know, watching the whole Obama raid go down. Uh, and they had that picture frozen in time of everybody in the room. Uh, with that, that the look on their faces of, oh, really? That's how this is going to go. <laughs> yeah, well, this is real time. You know, this yeah. is like, oh, wow, okay, we're watching. This is not, you know, this is a real thing. This yep. is real, you know, real TV. So, yeah, and so, so again, we kind of set all that up and, mm-hmm. you know, made that all possible. Um, one of the things that I'm most proud of, you know, I haven't got there yet necessarily because, you know, I got to should say, I should fast forward a little bit is, is that my, um, uh, you know, how did I become to retire was that my predecessor, the executive secretary of the National Security Council, who I worked for when I was a director of the White House Situation Room, a gentleman named Phil Lago, um, he was a, a CIA guy. And um, and so he had served uh, President Bush for two and a half years. And, and President Bush said, hey, are you going to be able to you know, finish up your term as the executive secretary. And Phil said, well, you know, I've done two and a half years. I think it's, you know, I I really worked hard for these last two years. I think it's time for me to let somebody else have that opportunity. So he was down visiting me in the situation room and says, I'm going to go see Steve Hadley, who was the national security advisor. And we're going to talk about, you know, me leaving. And I said, hey, great, you know, good luck with that. And he said, well, Steve won't let me leave until I find my replacement. I said, oh, fantastic. He said, well, good news is I got like four candidates that uh, that I'm going to go talk to Steve about. I said, hey, good luck with that. Okay, so off he goes. Uh, about an hour later, he comes back and goes, I said, hey, how'd that go? Did you find your replacement? And he goes, well, Steve thought they were all great candidates, but he um, he didn't think uh, that any were the right fit. And I said, oh, too bad for you. Back to the drawing board. And he goes, well, Steve said, hey, yeah, it's too bad John Prey's not available. And I said, well, isn't that nice? Well, you know, that was really kind of him to say so. And, and Phil goes, well, are you? <laughs> I go, well, no, I, I, I you know, the, uh, the head of the uh, National Security Council by law has to be a civilian. And I'm a uh, military officer. And he goes, well, is that a problem? And I go, well, yeah, I'd have to retire to take the job. And he goes, well, is that a problem? And I go, well, yeah, I, <laughs> I really, really don't have enough time and grade to retire as a general yet. And he goes, well, is that a problem? About, I, go, I see well, a pattern developing here. <laughs> yeah, I, said, I, said, I said, yeah, I think there is. You know, I, I really kind of worked pretty hard through this, you know, my career. I, I don't want to just kind of give it up again. He goes, well, what would it take to kind of make that work? And I said, well, I think it requires a president a waiver. And he goes, well, what kind of waiver? And I go, well, I think it's a presidential waiver. He goes, hey, we're in the right place. So, uh, yeah, I mean, so, uh, so uh, push comes to shove. Um, he said, well, are you interested? And I said, well, let me think about it. So um, I did um, thought about it for a couple of days. And I said, you know, I feel like I'm being called to serve uh, in a different fashion. And, um, you know, of course, you know, when you do retire, you know, you can't get back in. So it was kind of a career change at that point. And I said, 
Well, you know what? I think I'm being called to serve. I think this is, you know, what um, I'm being asked to do, and I will serve uh, in this new capacity uh, the best of my ability. And I, so I retired uh, at that time, and with the understanding that the gig was up uh, in January 2009, <laughs> and yeah. uh, that was going to be I was going to be unemployed for the first time in my life. Right. Um, and so um, uh, I then kind of finished out the. Uh, uh, the Bush administration. And I cannot say enough good things about um, how President Bush uh, wanted to make the transition to the new administration, uh, the Obama administration, go smoothly. Uh, he came down early on and said, listen, this is going to be a model of how we transition um, uh, to a new administration. And so I had the opportunity to, um, uh, to participate uh, with the, uh, the, um, Air, uh, the National Security Council legal um, lead his name. Um, um, gosh, it escapes me for just a second here. I um, kind of think about it in a minute. But um, uh, Mike Scudder mm-hmm. and um, he, we are able to um, kind of prepare all the documents uh, that were going to be transitioned to the new administration of the Obama, the incoming Obama administration, uh, and get them ready to uh, to deal with national security issues uh, in a very uh, cogent way from day one. Uh, so I am extremely proud of uh, of how I was um, uh, a part of that transition of um, uh, information to from one administration to the next. Wow, um, I guess that saves the question of how you retired. You explained that very well. Um, so when <laughs> your job uh, ends in January of two thousand nine, the Obama administration takes hold. Do you have any idea what you're going to do next? None. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you know, you're talking about going to the undisclosed location. Yeah, I was one of the last guys out of the undisclosed location, turned my credentials in and I went, OK, what am I going to do next? So um, I, uh, I started uh, with uh, helping a friend of mine um, uh, kind of uh, grow his business a little bit. But I found out that, you know, as um, as kind of. Um, uh, it was not rewarding. It, I felt kind of, I felt I felt good about it, but I didn't feel like really that good about it. I didn't feel that sense of satisfaction that I had uh, when I was serving in the military. And so uh, the opportunity came to uh, join the USO, which is another military-related nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Um, a gentleman um, <clears throat> uh, named Sloan Gibson was the CEO, and uh, he's a remarkable leader. And I um, uh, I just um, wanted to. Uh, uh, to join that. Uh, he really inspired me to join that. Um, I then became the number two guy there for most of the time. Uh, I did that for six years. Uh, and then when the opportunity came to um, to be the CEO of, uh, of Operation Hillfront, I jumped at the chance. Uh, I just think this is where, uh, where the USO tends to focus on the active duty service member for the most part. Um, uh, I did want to kind of get into the family side of it as well, which is what Operation Hillfront does. So I've had the opportunity to do this for the, the last uh, six and a half years. I mean, and the family part of it makes so much sense for you in particular after, you know, again, your father and then having that job at Dover and seeing all the, the families and how much there is such an extension of the individual in uniform um, that goes well beyond uh, whatever happens in uniform. So uh, it, it seems like a perfect fit. Does Now, does Operation Homefront come to you or you go to them? I go to them. I, uh, I, I called a, a couple of friends when I found out the opportunity was available. And I said, hey, you know, what do you think? Uh, do you think I'm the right fit for this? And they said, John, you're made for this particular position. You need to apply for it. And, you know, fortunately, uh, you know, they had, uh, um, I think, a, 
uh, a lot of great candidates. And um, I was just fortunate to be selected, you know, um, among that. And then I had the opportunity to build my team. Uh, over the last six years, I have built, uh, you know, people have come to this organization bringing their energy and talent, enthusiasm, and and uh, we've grown a lot over the last six years. We've been able to do so much more for our military families that I just, I just feel so very proud of this organization, the team, um, and, uh, and everything they represent. Because, it, you know, I think we all think it's probably, a, a, I would think we all would agree that it's a national tragedy when we have a military member or family, when, you know, they're deployed places and they're serving across the globe that, um, you know, they, they, we asked them to do so much. And then so when they come back and transition, you know, back into their civilian communities, many times they don't realize how difficult those transitions can be. And then they get themselves in a little bit of financial trouble. And that financial trouble, you know, they miss a car payment, they miss a house payment, or they do something else. And it kind of gets a little bit of a spiral that that, that kind of reduces their ability to, to kind of uh, cope financially. And, and now all of a sudden they're on the outside of the American dream looking in. So all the work that they have done for our nation to kind of give us all the opportunity to enjoy everything that this great nation allows, now they're on the outside looking in. And so we are there as an organization to try to make sure that those short-term kind of financial hardships don't derail any hopes of a brighter future. So when we think about what our mission is, it's, you know, we, you know, build strong, stable, and secure military families so that they can thrive not simply struggle to get by in the communities, you know, our communities that they work so hard to protect. What is the the biggest lesson or the biggest thing after 27 years in uniform that you took to Operation Homefront that you'd like almost use every single day? Well, I, I think it's, um, you know, just kind of fully understanding and realizing what our military and what our military families do on our behalf. You know, oftentimes that's kind of away from us. It's kind of over there. It's, you know, it's it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. And, you know, well, you know, sometimes it, the news grabs headlines of, you know, things happening, you know, over there. We kind of go, oh, that's too bad. It's, it's really much more powerful than that. You know, the reason we are able to do all the wonderful things in this country and enjoy all the freedoms that we have is because many of those threats stay over there. And the only way that they can stay over there is because of our military. And now there are other, you know, entities within the, um, you know, the government that continue to kind of make sure those things don't happen either. You know, we have the CIA, we have the State Department, we have Treasury, all these other, you know, departments do their part to kind of make sure many of those threats stay, you know, external to the United States. Uh, the FBI does a marvelous job of making sure that, um, you know, the threats within this country are kind of identified as well. But the bottom line is, is that without that constant engagement uh, and, and constant preparedness by our military, um, I think many other actors would continue to threaten us. Other uh, parts of the world would be destabilized in such a way that would be very uh, disadvantageous to us uh, as a nation. Uh, and then when you think about us as a nation, it's us as communities and us as individuals. It, it goes all the way down to us. And so as individual families and everything else. So I think never losing sight of the fact that um, our military is a very important part of our success as a nation. And it's because of the professionalism, the training, the dedication, the commitment um, of some amazing members of our society that we as a larger society are able to function in relative peace and safety. 
Does uh, does the the eighteen year old kid who's entering the Air Force Academy ever think that he's going to be on the board of anything or the CEO of anything at that point in time? God no. Yeah, God, uh, no. I, I, I want to get on a board. The only boards I've ever been on are diving boards and skateboards. Uh, I, I need to get on a better board. <laughs> yeah. Well, somebody, hey, somebody you know, needs to ask spot. me to be on a board at some point in time. We may have we may have a spot for you. So hey, you know, hey, kind of dust off that resume. Um, we're gonna have to see how your command assignment goes first. Yeah, thank, thank you. Yeah, just leave, leave, leave it up to the objective stuff. Wonderful. Um, what what would be the the piece of advice that the CEO gives to uh, John Prey, who graduates, Second Lieutenant John Prey, who graduates from the Air Force Academy? What would be the one piece of advice you'd give him now? I say enjoy every minute. Um, you know, um, it, it is in many ways a privilege to serve um, and embrace it as such um, and, and learn as much as you can as you go. It is a uh, it's an amazing um, training ground for you to kind of learn leadership and um, a lot of other things. You know, the military, they always say it teaches you discipline and, you know, work ethic and a variety of other things. Yes, that does do that. It, can, it teaches you commitment, being able to do more um, than you think possible, you know, and, and, you know, exceed both your physical and mental capabilities. Uh, There's all that. They give you so many opportunities in the military. Uh, don't leave those, you know, sitting by, you know, take advantage of all those things uh, as you go through. Work on your education. I think that, you know, one of the things that um, is often overlooked is um, uh, the, mili- the military's uh, embracing uh, uh, educational opportunities. Um, you know, so many of our, uh, um, even our, um, you know, enlisted members have uh, advanced deg- or degrees. Um, and uh, I think it's, um, it just kind of uh, speaks very highly of the talent that we are, are able to, uh, to bring on board. But don't let, leave those um, um, those experiences um, on the side, kind of embrace everyone, make good friendships along the way. They're going to be the ones that will, you know, carry you. You know, shared experiences are, are very powerful um, uh, as you go through uh, your life. But also remember that what you were doing is not easily transferable to um, uh, the civilian sector. Sure. Uh, the civilian sector uses a lot of different words, a lot of different uh, terms to describe what uh, individuals do. And so make sure that you are prepared for that transition. We all transition out at some point. So don't just kind of just kind of stay focused on on um, on the military, which you need to do. Um, but you need to also kind of keep an eye on hey, what your transition is going to look like. And uh, as you get back into the, the civilian uh, community and 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 don't forget that, you know, it's part of your responsibility as a military member to help the civilian com- component of our society understand what you do. It's not their necessarily their job to understand what you do. It's your job also to help them understand what you do um, because it is so darn important. And you're the only one that can actually help explain it in terms that they may understand. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. You mentioned the, uh, the, the, you know, the retirement, and the transition, because we all do it. And I've said it a um, hundred times and it's, it's only really, I only started to realize it after I got that 20 year letter where it's like, Hey, you know, at some point in time, we're all told we can't put the uniform on anymore, right? right? I mean, some people are told after four years, some people choose after X number of months, years, whatever it is, but we're all told that at some point in time, you have to take the uniform off. Uh, yep. and, and while we are very goal-focused in the military, um, and we know that there is a finish line, we never spend any time training people for the final two minutes of the game, so to speak, right? Um, no. we, we don't ever focus on it. We just keep plugging along the next play, to use my football analogy, the next play, the next drive, the next touchdown, whatever it may be, 
but we never focus on when the clock hit zero because it's an individual thing for everybody. And some people get ahead of it and some people don't. And it can be a little bit daunting. Um, you know, I, I keep having to remind myself that I've spent more of my life in uniform than I have out of it at this point in time. You know, for, for someone who's commissioned at 21, I've been in my life. The, the uniform has been part of my life more than half of it. So uh, my adult life doesn't know a life without a uniform in it. Eventually, one day it will. But um, it's a, sometimes a little bit daunting to have to go through and understand what that looks like. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, when we talk about what the military does, the military does a marvelous job of bringing, you know, a variety of, uh, you know, different people, different cultures, different everything into the military, you know, making them kind of a uh, kind of the same, you know, with same values and the same kind of those kind of things. So it does a great job bringing in. So it may take like one, two, three years to get you trained up in your particular profession. Uh, and then on the way out, they give you one day, it says, hey, here's one day of training. And well, it's like to be a civilian. Good luck. Yeah, <laughs> you know? Right. But, you know, that's kind of what the military is designed to do at the end of the day. You know, it's designed to kind of bring you in, but they don't, you know, they're not because of the budgets. They're not really necessarily that designed to spend one, two or three years making sure you transition out successfully. And um, so they do the best they can. Um, and, um, and they, they hope that you've learned something on the way, but I think that that's where organizations like mine and, and others are able to kind of provide that help, uh, to, uh, our military families uh, as they transition out. And particularly those who kind of get themselves in a little bit of financial hardship. Uh, and then if we can kind of help them through what I call the bumpy space, um, they, uh, they, they, they tend to do extraordinarily well. One of the things, one of our programs that I'm most proud of is our critical financial assistance program. Uh, you know, where we've uh, fulfilled, um, you know, about 50,000 requests for help, uh, totaling about $35 million of support. And, you know, we find, you know, not only is that a powerful statistic, but we find that we only see about half of those individuals once. And we never see them again. Wow. And they're on their way and they're becoming productive members of society. We see another 25% twice. So three out of four families, if we help them once or twice, we were able to get them on uh, in, a, in, a, in a better way. You know, we have other protocols that, you know, um, help us help those who keep you know, having recurring problems uh, or challenges. But at the end of the day, you know, once we help them once or twice, we get them on their way and, uh, and they're, you know, back being fully functioning members of our society and, and contributing to, uh, you know, a stronger community and ultimately to a stronger America. When you talk about the stories of Operation Homefront, you know, you talk so vividly about stories from your dad, and, um, you know, stories, uh, obviously, at Dover, um, the stories that you hear from people and the impact that you're making at Homefront, uh, what does that do for you? It is, um, I cannot tell you how rewarding it is to know that you are changing lives for the better every single day. Yeah. You know, and they're, they're you know, we, we help tens of thousands of families each year. And, you know, each one is a story. Now, not all of them are very extraordinarily powerful, but, you know, there are, you know, hundreds of stories every year that are incredibly powerful. One, for example, you know, we had a family that came to us and said, one, like I said, our critical financial assistance program is one of the programs that people can apply for to help us pay their rent, their mortgage, their utilities, car repairs, home repairs, grocery bills, that kind of thing. Anyway, so what happened was we had a family came to us and said, hey, uh, I'm applying for a car repair. It says, you know, we're having trouble with our car. 
Hey, and that's right, you know, right down our, our, you know, what we do. And, you know, that oftentimes is the key component for, to keep a family in good shape, because oftentimes they need that car in order to get to a job that keeps that job and income coming in. So the car repair is really a big deal. Okay. So we said, yeah, Hey, where do we, you know, where do we uh, send the, you know, the, uh, you know, the bill to, you know, and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, what is your address? And so as we were talking with this family of five, mother, father, three kids, their car was their home. They were living out of their car. Oh man. And so we're going, Oh my gosh. So, you know, not only we just, so we got the car repaired, but then we got them in another one of our program where we were able to give that family a home. Um, we have another program called permanent homes for veterans, where we are able to um, uh, get foreclosed properties, fix them up and then put the military family into them, watch them for two years and then deed them that property at the end of that two year period, once they're ready for home ownership and they have a mortgage free home. So we were able to get that, our fam, that family of five into that new home or it's kind of a foreclosed home, but you know, we got it fixed up. So it was a, a new home for them. And to see the look on their face as they drove in in their car, which was their prior home, into um, to be able to see their new home was, you know, I, I, not a dry in the house. You know, it's just very powerful when you see that. A lot of our families, when they come and, and they talk to us about the impact that we have on their lives is they said, what you have done for us means everything. Mm-hmm. And you, you kind of go, well, what does everything mean? You know, because those of us with some means, you know, you kind of go, well, everything, you know, that's, that's kind of a strong statement. It is for them. It's incredibly powerful. It is everything. It is life changing. It puts them on a completely different course. Um, and that's exactly the impact that we hope to have. You know, we track that, you know, um, uh, we are not an organization that just measures how much money we spend on programs. You know, we call that inputs. You know, we're an outcomes-based organization where we actually survey the members um, that uh, we serve and say, hey, did what we do actually help you become stronger, stable, and more secure? And, you know, the numbers we get are staggering, you know, in the, in the high 90s to 100% uh, of our programmatic effort is that people say, yeah, what, we, what you have done has actually made us stronger, stable, more secure. Our website is operationhomefront.org, just the three words all together, operationhomefront.org. And obviously there's ways to help and give, and whether it's five bucks or anything more, by all means, uh, please donate if you can, because like every nonprofit, it's based off of donations, and and certainly they all help no matter how small. So again, operationhomefront.org. Did you ever think um, along the way that this is where you would end up? Um, Because this is still kind of a a life of service for you, right? Like you've never actually gotten away from it. No, you know, like I said, you know, um, early on uh, that my, my parents, because of the, their, you know, being part of the greatest generation, they really um, it's kind of built into me that I need to give back and right. need to serve others. And, um, and I really taken that to heart and I think that's guided every one of my decisions because, you know, when I was in the military, I had the opportunity to get out probably four times and um, uh, there were kind of break points. And I said, you know what, I, I really feel I'm in the right spot. I feel like I'm doing the right thing. Um, and so I stayed into that. And that's when it guided my decision whether to retire from the military when I had the opportunity when I was asked by the Bush administration to, uh, to kind of become the executive secretary. Uh, it's kind of why I chose to, to go with the USO. I felt a very powerful pull to continue to give back 
uh, in and from a nonprofit perspective. Uh, love that opportunity, and um, and I'm really relishing the opportunity to to do it as the CEO of Operation Homefront. It, it's just part of who I am right. at the end of the day, and and, um, um, and I just feel very very good about uh, um, the ability to give back. And I think you know most Americans share that same kind of feeling is is that it, it feels very good to be able to help others, uh, and particularly those who are in mm-hmm. significant need. And I, in, in many cases, our military families. Um, deserve our support, uh, our, our very best efforts, because they have given us their very best efforts uh, in return. What do you think uh, ov- your father would say? Obviously, he's proud of your time in uniform, but what do you think your father would say about uh, the post-military job that you've done? Like if you were to pick up the phone, <laughs> hypothetically, be able to call him and say, Dad, I'm going to be the CEO of Operation Homefront. What do you think his response would be? Uh, I think it would have been like, uh, you know, uh, like anything else, you know, he'd probably say, Hey, don't F this up. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, he was very practical about things. Um, you know, um, and, and one who never, um, you know, took himself, you know, too seriously and understood that, you know, um, uh, it, it always takes a team to get things done and, uh, and, and make a difference. And so uh, I would say, hey, don't lose sight of the fact that um, you know, where you come from and, um, and never lose sight of the people that you serve. One of our core values is do what's right. And um, the way we define that is, is uh, we want to make sure that we're doing whatever we do and the decisions we make as an organization are in the best interest of the military families we seek to serve. So again, never lose sight of the fact that there are Values that guide your way and continue to employ those values uh, in, uh, in everything you do. Well, on that note, uh, I don't think we could end it a better way, but it has certainly been uh, great to speak with you and certainly uh, follow your journey all the way to Operation Homefront. Again, operationhomefront.org. But uh, after a long and lengthy, successful military career, uh, the work you're doing in post-military career, uh, the impact is probably greater than anything you could have ever done while in the military, uh, touching so many lives in, in the right way and, and continuing to do the right thing, which for some reason seems to be a much harder concept to grasp than it ever should have been. But obviously <laughs> a different discussion for a different time. But Yeah, again, that, that's like a whole show. Right, uh, right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but thank you so much for spending some time with us. We appreciate it. Well, I just want to say uh, thank you for having us on. Uh, Mark, you're doing a marvelous job. I think Hazard Ground is a great way of kind of making sure that our uh, civilian community stays connected with our military community. And I applaud what you're doing. I applaud that uh, your promotion to 06. I applaud your command coming up. I, I think you're going to do a marvelous job. You have all the right skills and all the right attitude to make this uh, just kind of a remarkable experience. So thank you for having us on. Uh, Brigadier General Retired John Prey, thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. 